Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is June 7th, 2005. This is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. With me this week are Perry DeAngelis. Hello, everybody. And Bob Novella. Good evening. We have a special guest this week, Massimo Pigliucci, uh, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, some follow-up from our discussion last week. Uh, last week we talked about what is now being known as the Smithsonian Institution ID fiasco. Um, for those of you who listened, uh, the Smithsonian Institution agreed to co-sponsor a film which was being promoted by the Discovery Institute, which is an intelligent design creationism proponent. The film shocking is called shocking lapse of judgment. A shocking, a shocking, shocking lapse, lapse of, lapse. of judgment, and uh, we agreed was extremely naive. And yes. Steve, they're more than just proponents. I mean, they are the major arm yes. of, the, of the movement. That's correct. They exist to promote intelligent design creationism. Uh, the film was the privileged planet, the search for design in the universe or purpose in the universe. As in response to the Smithsonian Institution's plan, there was. Um, a backlash of criticism from the scientific and skeptical communities. I'm shocked. <laughs> and which has happened in many cases, as we do, as we have discussed in the past, um, when school boards or institutions, uh, you know, fall prey to either creationism or intelligent design, or uh, are being used in this purpose, the blogosphere jumps on it. The, the cyberspace skeptical and scientific community can react almost instantaneously. Mr. Randall Kramer, who is the public affairs uh, agent for, for Smithsonian Institute, was flooded with emails. They were essentially embarrassed out of co-sponsoring the film, which is, which is a, a, you know, a minor victory for skeptical activism. And they should have been embarrassed. They should have been embarrassed. Here, I, I'm going to read to you the email that I personally sent to Mr. Kramer, which, which, which I think, which I think just put it over the edge. That yes. was the you know the straw that made them cave. Clearly, it was instrumental in, no in this victory, no um, which is which is I think probably representative of the kind of uh, uh, scientific um, backlash that they received. So here's the email. Mr. Kramer, as a scientist and educator, I was very dismayed to hear that the prestigious Smithsonian Institution was co-sponsoring the screening of a film promoting the pseudoscience of intelligent design, the privileged planet, the search for purpose in the universe. I strongly urge you to reconsider. The Discovery Institute is a pseudoscientific organization dedicated to promoting religious belief as science. Intelligent design is a thinly veiled religious belief system designed deliberately to remove any overt religious references from what is otherwise classic creationism. Its purpose is to infiltrate institutions like SI in order to convince the public that it has scientific credentials. Do not be so naive as unfortunately others before you have in thinking that screening this film at SI will not be used by the Discovery Institute and other promoters of ID as scientific authoritative endorsement of ID. In fact, they are already doing so. You have stated that SI policy is such that events of a religious or partisan political nature are not permitted. I would add to that list egregious pseudoscience. Even if you accept the propaganda that ID is not a religious belief, you must acknowledge the consensus opinion of the scientific community that is simply not science. Do not let SI be exploited to promote an anti-scientific agenda. Here, here. And again, feedback like that, you know, very within days forced 
you know, embarrassed the Smithsonian oh, Institute. So he must have got thousands of those. Must have gotten thousands. I hope so. I mean, we and, and the New England Skeptical Society did our part in spreading the word and encouraging people to write similar emails. And, and the JREF with their offer, uh, their financial offer. Uh, yeah, well, Ra- Randy offered $20,000 to SI to not show the film. They did not accept his offer. Um, right. They simp- And, in fact, they declined to accept the $16,000 from the Discovery Institute. So they're getting no money. They're well, showing the I- film anyway. Steve, I don't think they actually declined to accept it. I think they gave it back. Well, oh, yes, fine. My, they, yeah, they, they returned it. They returned it. They returned they the sixteen thousand, yeah. and they removed their co-sponsorship of the film. So, it, this film is still being screened, you know, as a pr- at a private function in in the Smithsonian Institute, but it's not being sponsored. They're not accepting any funds from them, and, and clearly, the the imprimatur, the validation of it of a prestigious scientific institution like the Smithsonian Institute is, has been removed from this film and from the Discovery Institute. So it's so 90% good. And I think that they will be more wary the next 90%. time. This, this, right. the, the real victory here is that this will not happen again. What hopefully. were they thinking? What were they thinking? Yeah, it's crazy. Just crazy. incredible. We are going to also introduce a new segment this week, a segment called Science or Fiction. In this segment... I'm going to challenge my panel of skeptics. I have three news items, scientific breakthroughs, scientific news items from the past week. I'm going to read you a brief summary of each of those items. The trick is that one of these items is is not real. One of these items is fiction. The other two are genuine scientific breakthroughs. One is fiction. The challenge for you two this week is is to try to decide which one is the fake one. Mere child's play. <laughs> you have to bring all of your skeptical tools to bear to see if you could sniff out the fake. You can make your comments about each one as I present them, but wait until I've stated all three before you make your guess as to which one is fake. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. All right, let's go play. for it. Item number one. Dolphins have been observed not only using tools, but also teaching tool use to their children. This is the first example of cultural tool use in a non-primate species. That's item number one. Interesting. Item number two. Astronomers have discovered an Earth-like planet orbiting a nearby star, 50 light years from Earth. This is the first Earth-sized planet discovered around another star, and astronomers say there are indications that the planet has an atmosphere. This is the best candidate so far for extraterrestrial life. How far? But, uh, it's, about, it's about 50 light years from, from our system. All right. Item number three, French scientists have discovered a way to keep water from freezing at hundreds of degrees below zero, near absolute zero. Those are your three items. <laughs> what wow. are your thoughts? I've got problems with all of them. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's why they were chosen. <laughs> okay. Uh, the dolphins... Uh, you said you said one thing at the end though that uh, piqued my interest. There, you said that it's the first non-primate species shown right. to use tools. Well, cultural tool use. In other words, they're, it's not something that's just um, in, innate. They're actually teaching this to okay. their Okay. Because when you said that, I thought of because uh, I know there are birds that will actually use tools use tools in this, to. Uh, and there are, and there's some birds have some problem-solving skills. But right. This is this is they're this actually is cultural. Bird, this is actually a cultural thing. Teaching the tool use, yes. Okay, now, I, I mean, since, of course, they don't, they don't have any hands or opposable thumbs, I assume huh. uh, they're not using their flippers. It would have to be their mouth 
So maybe somehow they're, they're using their mouth to manipulate an object uh, that they find on the sea floor. I don't, I don't think that's um, As for me, I'm going to say the first one is uh, the truth. I recently, within the last week, saw a special, I think on Discovery <coughs> Channel. You know, it showed uh, dolphins being very sophisticated, uh, particularly the thing that they showed that really struck me was how two males would team up for a long time and keep a female hostage between the two of them, swim around with her, never let her get very far from them. I've heard of that. For months. Months? For months they would keep her so that uh, she would only mate with them. They're <coughs> smart critters. They're she tried to get critters. away, wow. they would attack her and, get, and, and really keep her corralled. Now, anyway, right, the, so it the, sounds accurate to me. First the, second, the second one uh, has got to be false. We, we simply are not at the... Uh, yeah, it's too far. No, not a, not actually. Fifty light years. Fifty light years is not too far. It's the actual size that that, that can't be right. Uh, Earth-sized planets. We simply don't have the technology yet to ascertain the, the uh, to determine or to find planets that are Earth-sized. Typically, the only things we find are bigger than actually Jupiter. So yeah. we're talking, you know, thousands and thousands of times bigger than the Earth. It went beyond that too, Bob. He said that they had evidence that there was an atmosphere on it. How well, that, that's possible. I mean, you could, you could. Uh, I think using that size. some. Well, using something. Uh, All it requires is spectroscopic analysis right. of the light coming. Spectroscopy would tell you if there are certain elements in the atmosphere. That's not what concerns me. It's a size, and that's just too small. We haven't. We're not close to detecting Earth size yet. That one we, sounds false to me. We will. We will get there, though. We will get there, but we're not there yet. Um, now that that it doesn't matter what technique they're using. They could be using, uh, you know, the gravitational disturbance of the parent star. Right. You know, wobbling. caused by the planet, still yeah. Earth-sized planets are just too too small to uh, create a nudge that, that's detectable yet. Now the and last the, uh, one, <coughs> the last one about the water. I mean, it's well. Let, let, me, let me make one more comment about the second one. The other the other technique is actually when it was recently uh, perfected. They've actually they claim to have discovered a planet that was the first planet discovered purely from the reflected uh, light from the parent star which is quite an achievement, and, but still, that was a huge planet, a huge amount of, uh, of light, relatively speaking. So you don't speaking. think we're ready for this breakthrough yet? No, not yet. We will definitely get there, and maybe relatively soon, maybe, you know, maybe 10 years, 6 years, but, but I've heard nothing approaching Earth-sized yet. And the third one, Perry, did you want to comment on the uh, I was water? simply saying that it's, uh, it's impressive, <coughs> but it, it simply seems more reasonable. Not precisely sure how you go about doing it. Even though they were French scientists. Yeah, well, we're, gonna, <laughs> we're you know bending our disbelief for the for the moment. Uh, what temperature we, did you say, Steve? You mentioned near Hundreds absolute zero? zero. Single digits. Single single degrees near absolute zero. Yeah, eight that's degrees I think was the figure given. That's crazy. That's uh no that's liquid liquid water. I don't. Um, no, I don't see. I don't see that happening. Um, well, that's, you got to choose between the two. Of them. I know that's that's just too damn cold. I mean, even you know, moving water can uh, can get a, can get a colder than 32 just by the by the fact that it's moving uh, will lower the uh, freezing temperature a little bit. But to that degree, maybe there's some sort of uh, state they can get water into that that makes it somewhat immune to uh, to freezing. But uh, I can't imagine what that might be. Let's see. What? Uh, how could they? What could they possibly do to liquid water to to maintain that state? <laughs> Even I that that close. Moving at a you know an incredibly high speed. 
Hmm. So it's time time to cast okay. your votes. By yeah, definition, I, I, I still I'm still I still think number two is is less reasonable. Perry votes for number two, the Earth-sized planet around another star. Is what true tr- science as, fiction. as the fake one? As the fiction? As the fiction. I now there's that, two that, fictions, that aren't there? Two fictions? No, there's, no, there's one fiction. There's two are real. Right. Steve, uh, I, I could have sworn you said uh, one on, real, Bob, two fiction. Two, two, two are science, one is fiction. These rules are not complicated. Okay, right. then well, there's got to be two. Two is definitely fiction. So you both cast your vote for two. <laughs> correct. Too small. Okay. Well, you are both good skeptics. You got the correct answer. Of course we are! <laughs> now, how did the scientists did do well. that with the waters? Steve? I'm dying. Right, well, I'm let's dying. take them in order. <laughs> let's take them in order. I'm dying. A group of dolphins living off the coast of Australia teach their offspring to use their snouts with sponges while foraging for food in the sea floor. So they actually put sponges on their noses to protect, their, to protect them while foraging on the sea floor. How do they do and, this? And then they caught, they stick it on there. And then they, they caught um, mothers teaching this to their children. Yeah. That's fascinating. So they get like right. a so you were right. Your your intuition was right. It was something they do use their snout, not their flippers. Absolutely. Um, so if they get like a red sponge and stick it to the nose, they look kind of like clownfish. Is that <laughs> is that how it works? I guess so. <laughs> this was uh, by Crutes and, and colleagues. They analyzed 13 what they're calling spongers and 172 non-spongers and concluded that the practice seems to be passed along family lines, primarily from mothers to daughters for let's, some reason. Let's, that's very um, believable. Um, I mean, they're just so intelligent. Um, it's, women it do most of the work in the animal very <laughs> seems very likely that they, that they could improvise some sort of tool use with their, with their snouts. Okay, makes sense. Now, you're absolutely right with number two. I think that that is eventually going to be a, he- a headline, right. but it's just a few years too early. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Bob is just too up to date on the uh, the planet hunting hey, yeah, yeah. state of the art. I guessed it too. Thank you did, you. but Bob had the details. <laughs> it's true. You, you, you both sniffed Thank that one you. out. Now, water me. Come on, tell me. What's the Okay, do this? here's the headline. Here's the headline. You're going to love it. Nanotube water doesn't freeze, uh, even at hundreds of degrees below zero. So what wow. uh, French scientists have done is they are using uh, the carbon nanotubes as a template, and the and the water molecules filling these tubes take on a similar structure where the hydrogen and oxygen uh, atoms form a lattice-like bond. And they w- it will not freeze. It will continue to flow through this tube even down to near absolute t- temperatures. That's fascinating. Huh. My God. It, I mean, it, it changes the, the molecular arrangement of the, of the, uh, of the water. Yeah, it actually t- changes the molecular arrangement of the water. I mean, but can you can you still consider it um, liquid water, though? You know, it's that's a good question. It's, it, the, the, I didn't say it remained a liquid. I said it didn't freeze. So ah, okay. It, 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 it may actually be another state of water. That, it that may not technically sense. be the same state as you know normal liquid water. Sort it of is plasmic? A, it is, uh, it's not a plasma. I mean, no? it's, it's a new... And I don't know if they're actually going to call it a new phase... But it definitely is a new state that water is in. And it is li- more like liquid than like ice. It certainly does not form ice crystals. It stays in this lattice formation and, and does not for, you know, freeze into the, into the normal crystalline structure that, that water ice has. Yeah, it definitely doesn't sound like any of the other states of matter uh, could account for that. I mean, it, couldn't, it, doesn't sound, it doesn't sound liquid to me. It doesn't sound... Uh, maybe it's a different type of solid. Um, it's definitely not the other, the other types like plasma that Perry mentioned or... Some of the more exotic ones, the Bose-Einstein condensates and the uh, fermionic condensates. It can't be that either. So maybe it's a, d- a new type of solid for, for water. It's okay. interesting as heck. 
Very interesting. It remains to be seen what the applications of this would be. But the these nanotubes uh, technology is you know very very new and very very active area of research. And this is just just one example. The, the applications are appear to be just utterly mind-boggling for these nanotubes. I've never seen a discovery take off in, in quite the way that nanotubes has. I mean, it, I mean, just from the get-go. Uh, um, you know, the interest was, you know, was worldwide, and, they, and since then they found applica potential applications from, from computing to, uh, to fibers to, uh, to maybe to all sorts of applications, electronics. It's, it's amazing how versatile this, this material uh, appears, appears to be. I think we'll be hearing a lot about nanotubes. Very interesting. Well, it is now time to bring on our guest. With us this week is Dr. Massimo Pigliucci, who we simply call our friend Massimo. <laughs> Massimo is an associate professor of evolutionary biology at SUNY Sto Stony Brook in Long Island. Uh, he has published over 70 technical papers in evolution and botany. He's written seven books. Uh, his most recent non-technical book is Denying Evolution. He's the author of a column in Skeptical Inquirer magazine called Thinking About Science. And he's a frequent contribu contributor not only to Skeptical Inquirer, but also Skeptic, Free Inquiry, Philosophy Now, and Philosopher's Magazine. He has a doctorate in genetics from the University of Ferrara in Italy, a PhD in botany from the University of Connecticut, and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. Welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, Massimo. Thank you for having me. That list always sounds a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, it's embarrassing to hear somebody else read your own CV. I, w I wish I had such a list. It's daunting, yes. Uh, thank you for being on our show this week. We appreciate it. My pleasure. So I'm, I'm sure you've been following in the news over the last few weeks the, the recent activity of the, our, our friends, the Intelligent Design Crew. Yes. Um, in Kansas City, with the uh, Smith we just got through talking about the the Smithsonian Institute debacle, right. which if you hadn't heard, um, they they backed off from co-sponsoring the the Discovery Institute film. Right. See, sometimes sometimes it works. Sometimes it does work. Sometimes it does work. Amen. And, and hopefully, people you know, like the director of the Smithsonian will think twice before you know falling for the Discovery Institute's coy offers in the future. So, wh what have you been doing recently in terms of uh, investigating or writing about the Intelligent Design crew? Uh, well, one thing that I've not been doing uh, is to go to Kansas for those uh, scam hearings that they organized uh, with the, the local board uh, of education. Were you invited? Yes, I was actually invited, and I followed the advice of Eugenie Scott of the National Center for Science Education, uh, more or less politely responding that, that was a, it wouldn't be a good idea for serious scientists to participate. So Massimo, you agree with the, the, the basic, what I've been reading then, in that the, the scientific community is really refraining from speaking at, the, at those hearings. You agree with that? Right, I agree, and uh, that's actually a change of heart for me because in the past I've been involved in direct debates with creationist intelligent design proponents and so on and so forth. Uh, now, under certain circumstances, those debates are actually fun, I guess, um, and it may have a purpose uh, depending on of the venue and the format and so on. But definitely, in front of a school board, uh, it's not; a, it doesn't seem like like a good idea um, because. It really, in that case, does provide uh, the other side with some legitimacy that they 
frankly don't deserve. Um, but do you, do you, critics have said critics of the of the decision of Eugenie Scott and and you obviously and the scientists that she advised not to boycott those hearings have said that they already have legitimacy by the mere fact that they're before a school board and then therefore shouldn't the mainstream scientific position be represented? What do you say about that? Um, well, it depends on, uh, I think when we're talking about legitimacy, it depends on who bestows the legitimacy. Uh, it seems to me that one thing is to be invited by a school board, who, as we know, is elected and doesn't necessarily have much of, uh, of a background in either science or education, for that matter. Uh, another thing is to be, uh, on the other hand, given some credence from a professional biologist or professional scientist. And that's what, I guess, we wanted to avoid in this, in this case. Incidentally, the message was, uh, in no uncertain terms, uh, directed mostly to the, 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 the school board. In other words, we told them that this, this was simply not an acceptable way of, of uh, deciding these sort of matters. Do you think that strategy worked? Uh, I think it worked better than the alternative in this, in this particular case. Uh, we'll see, of course, what the, what the final outcome of the Kansas situation is. Apparently, right. in Kansas, there's never a final outcome. They're, they're right. going to change their mind every other year, basically. It's true. We thought it was interesting, the other unique or new aspect of this case was that the, the school board's decision, what they've said so far, I know they haven't rendered a final decision, went beyond just the, the creation-evolution issue to actually redefining science. Which is, of course, right, which is, of course, what the intelligent design crowd actually wants, beginning with uh, Philip Johnson's uh, early books and, and certainly now with their chief uh, intellectual, uh, Bill Densky. Uh, mm-hmm. What they want is, in fact, to redefine science. And that's an interesting point, which I, think, I, guess, I guess we should spend a couple of minutes on. Uh, I have talked and said I've debated um, Bill Densky a couple of times, and we have, we have exchanged um, opinions in, in writings as well. And here's Densky, Densky's position, which sounds very reasonable, uh, and I think it's one of, one of the reasons it is uh, so appealing to uh, sort of people who don't have much of a philosophical uh, background, even some scientists. His position is the following. He says, look, uh, it used to be that anything, di- different kinds of, of potential causes for, for events were allowed as possible explanation since the time of Aristotle. Aristotle included final causes, of course, uh, to which intelligent design will belong as, uh, as acceptable kind of answers when one wonders about uh, what's going on in the universe. And then, uh, then he says, uh, Bacon came on, the, the British philosopher came on the scene in the, in the 16th century and decided more or less arbitrarily that final causes were out, that science was only a matter of how and not of why, and uh, ever since, according to Dembski, science has been impoverished and, and it's time to, to bring things back, essentially, to the, to the wholeness of, of the Aristotelian approach. Now, that sounds very interesting, except that there are a couple of things that don't work. First of all, Aristotle never used the final causes in a, in a way that Pildensky would, would like to begin mm-hmm. with. But that's a, that's a minor point. The major point is this. There was a very good reason why Bacon did suggested what he, what he suggested, which was he realized that science wasn't going to get off the ground while it was still messing around with supernatural explanations. If one always had the supernatural part to play any time that one was, was sort of uh, running out of options, then science would simply uh, never really be able to make progress in understanding uh, the natural world. Uh, so right. that, that's why he said, you know, those kind of, of answers are out. Now, 
That worked very well for uh, about a couple of centuries, basically, and especially in physics, you know, Galileo, Newton, and so on. Then Darwin came to play, and, and uh, the game changed again, because, in fact, Darwin did, contrary to what Damsky maintains, Darwin did reintroduce final causes in, in science, and in particular in biology. The question of why things happen is, in fact, a fundamental question in evolutionary biology. Uh, and it is a perfectly fair question, which is pursued by uh, biologists uh, uh, since, since Darwin. It's just that we answer in a different way. Uh, when we ask why uh, is the eye structured the way it is, the answer is because natural selection favored certain variations on, on that structure, which work better for the purpose of um, visualizing objects and so on and so forth. In other words, there is a, a role for why questions in biology. It's just that the answer is dramatically different from the one that intelligent design proponents uh, would uh, would want to, to, to see in the uh, considered. Right. As, why as why questions are essentially mechanism. What what is the mechanism of this phenomenon? The long term mechanism. So the, the the distinction here in biology is particularly clear between how questions and why questions. So I can ask those questions, for example, again about the eye. And if I ask how does it work, then what I mean is what are the, the molecular and cellular mechanisms that allow the uh, image to be, you know, the light to be captured, the image to be formed and to be sent to the brain and so on and so forth. But if I ask why is the eye there to begin with, then the answer is, regardless of specific mechanisms, the answer is because there is an advantage for certain living organisms to be able to uh, see what, uh, you know, to, to perceive and, and, and understand uh, their surroundings in terms of uh, light waves. Right, so evolution is the ultimate why answer in, for, for biology, for right. biological why questions. That's right. Dembski and, and his crowd would like to reintroduce, essentially take us back before Darwin, before Galileo, before Bacon even, and to reintroduce supernatural or divine causes into scientific questions. What they say is that by not allowing them, we're essentially rigging the game against those types of answers. Right. What's your response to that? Well, the response is that, uh, suppose, uh, in fact, I actually asked this question to Densky um, at, at one point at a, at a meeting of, at the New York Academy of Sciences a couple of years ago. And the question is, okay, well, suppose for, uh, for a moment that, in fact, we do allow intelligent design in the sense that Densky means uh, back into science. So suppose that I'm going to be all of a sudden I'm, I'm the director of the National Science Foundation and I decide to give you know three million dollars over a period of five years to Densky, which is a pretty good grant uh, by NSF standards. And I ask him, you know, what would you do? What, what sort of experiments would you set up? What sort of uh, empirical hypothesis would you be able to uh, to test? And of That's course he had no answer. Yeah, he had no answer. Of course he has no answer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that is why I think. Uh, so there, there, I guess to go back to your question, there are two different kinds of answers to why is it that that uh, the supernatural is out by definition, essentially. One is the pragmatic one, the one that I just provided. You know, from the point of view of a practical scientist, I want to see. You know, the, the proof is in the pudding. What, where, where is it going to go? Suppose that I do give you the money, what sort of hypothesis can you test? And of course the answer again is none, because by definition, of course, a supernatural agent can do whatever the heck he wants. Right. Uh, and so there's no way to predict, and therefore to test what he's going to do. The other answer is, I think, a little deeper, and that's, and that's a philosophical answer. And as you know, most scientists are not particularly uh, well-versed in, in, in philosophy. But the philosophical answer is this. 
it is a matter as a matter of principle. Once it, that you invoke the supernatural, you will not be able to propose empirically testable hypotheses. In other words, not, it's not just a matter of Bill Densky's uh, limited uh, imagination or anybody else's limited imagination that at the moment we can't think of one, but give me enough time and I'll, and I'll come up with one. A philosopher would argue that as a matter of principle, uh, if you abandon the uh, position of methodological naturalism in science, you're dead. You're not doing science anymore. You might be doing right. something else. You might be doing theology. You might be doing some sort of philosophy, but you're certainly not doing science. Um, and it is that, that difference, of course, between philosophical and, and methodological naturalism that is very important. It's, it's apparently a little subtle for most people, but it's right. very important in terms of this debate. Right, and they either, they either don't get it or don't want to get it. Right. <laughs> I do have the suspicion sometimes that they don't want to get they it. Don't, they don't want to get it. Because, right. I mean, how many times can you explain it to them and, right. and to really not understand it, you know, stretches the imagination. Right. I mean, I can see how some people with no background in either science or philosophy might be a little puzzled by this, this difference, which, by the way, we should probably explain. But, but somebody like Bill Bensky, who does actually, in fact, in fact, have a degree in philosophy, it's hard to believe that, that he doesn't understand uh, the implications of that distinction. Right. And I've had the, the same experience as you. If you remember, we were together at the, um, the World Skeptics Conference a couple of years ago. Yeah. And uh, I had the opportunity to ask, I think it was of, of Nelson, um, mm -hmm. the, the, the similar kind of question. Yeah, and what he said was that you, know, you cannot question the mind of God, if I say. So, which means, as you just said, any hypothesis about intelligent design, about the intelligent designer, that you could seek to test or to falsify is rendered unfalsifiable by that statement. Because you, know, you can't ask the question, what would or what should the world look like if it were designed by an intelligent designer? Because you, there's no answer to that question. The answer is, it looks like whatever it looks like. Right. And therefore, it's not falsifiable. And right. therefore, not science. Correct. Could, there is, there you is know a, they have to understand that. Right. There is a caveat there, which of course is, is something that Bensky, either as a matter of, either on purpose or, or because uh, he really doesn't see the difference, he insists on, on this point. He says, but look, there's plenty of good science that is done under the assumption of intelligent design. He talks about forensic science, the, the search for universal intelligence, and so on and so forth. And of course he's right, that kind of science, archaeology for example, uh, is done under the presumption, presumption of intelligent design. But in those cases, you can, in fact, question the mind of the designer. Right. In fact, the whole point is that you do know, mm. or you at least make hypotheses Excellent. about what the designer is doing and why. Right. If you couldn't do that, then there would be no archaeology, no SETI, and, right. and, and no forensic science. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so intelligent design is a little too broad of, of, a, of, of a term. It's so it's a false that, analogy on their that's part. That's right. Exactly. It is. I've always, it, it's always struck, struck me, too, that it's one enormous logical fallacy. Now, we, we keep track of logical fallacies on this show. We actually have our top 20 list of logical fallacies, <laughs> and which you can read on our, on our website at thenest.com. There's a, a couple that they're using. One, of course, is the argument from ignorance. We don't know something, therefore... God did it. Right. Um, and specifically in this type of explanation, you can also call that the God of the gaps argument. Right. Um, but it's also confusing currently unexplained with unexplainable. Again, that's sort of the current gap of knowledge. That's what God did. Right. And, and as that gap retreats, 
in the ever-advancing you know, knowledge of science, God still fills whatever gaps and crevices are currently unexplained as if they never will be explained, right. even though tomorrow they are explained. I would make also uh, an even, an even uh, third-level distinction. That is, there, there are two kinds of unexplainable uh, questions or phenomena. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, there is uh, the impossibility to explain something because, in fact, there is essentially no explanation within the, the realm of natural laws, which is, which is a sort of unexplainable phenomenon that, that Dembski likes. But there is also what philosophers call epistemic un- unexplainability. There is there may be some things out there that are explainable in the sense that there is an answer somewhere, but because of the limitations, both current and for possibly future, of human understanding and human reason, we might never be able to get the answer. Right. So it's like a dog. It's like a yes. dog trying to understand calculus. That's right. It's exactly. a, it's never going to happen. And there are some interesting possible examples within science. So, for example, the, the, the question of the origin of life may fall into that category. Uh, not because the, the, the origin of life is unexplainable in principle. I don't think it is. And, of course, we may explain it. I mean, you know, next week we may see an article in Science or Nature uh, with somebody who has actually come up with the right answer. But it may also be the sort of thing that is epistemically unexplainable by human beings simply because there's very, if any, uh, uh, clues left, essentially. You know, it's something that happened four billion years ago. There, is no, there are no fossils. We have very little understanding uh, or way to get in, uh, decent information about what the conditions actually were. So we might never be able to answer that question. But that, even that, even granting that, it still doesn't bring you any closer to... Uh, the necessity of a supernatural explanation. Right, right. Once again, we are speaking to Massimo Pigliucci, a philosopher and evolutionary scientist and author of many articles and books. Uh, we've been talking about the intelligent design phenomenon and uh, proponents of intelligent design, and which, which brings us really to the philosophical underpinnings of science itself. What is the difference between science and religion philosophically? And we've brought up some terms like philosophical naturalism. Uh, Our organization, for example, advocates what I would call scientific skepticism. And there's some subtle differences between these types of philosophies. You've written um, several reviews and articles, uh, for example, criticizing Stephen Jay Gould's uh, summary or summation of the relationship between science and religion. Gould had came up with this idea of non-overlapping magisteria mm-hmm. in which both science and religion occupy different different Doma- intellectual domains, domains. Right, right, different domains right. of knowledge, what he calls magisteria, right. and they each serve their purpose. You're, you, you have been very critical of this idea. Well, for a variety of reasons. I mean, the, the, you know, I'm not, I, I should probably start out by saying that I am not uh, a, a Gould either, like some of my colleagues. I, I really like some of the stuff that uh, Stephen Gould wrote, both technical and non-technical, and I really dislike some of the other stuff. Uh, in particular, about religion, there are a couple of things that, um, that really, uh, I think, it, uh, are worth considering in that, in that context. First of all, uh, Gould did not come up with, with the basic idea that you mentioned, although he did come up with the fancy name. Uh, but that idea goes back essentially all the way to uh, St. Augustine. Yes, uh, and, and he acknowledges that, to be fair. Right. Yeah. Now, the, uh, the basic idea, however, is, I think, a little misleading for two, at least for two reasons. Number one, because it hinges on, uh, on the definition of God, which Gould leaves kind of 
um, up in the air for most of that book. At one point, he finally has to get to come to, to terms with the fact that, well, in fact, there are some conceptions of God that do go head, head on against science. For example, if you are a young Earth creationist who believes that there was a, a, a worldwide flood 4,000 years ago, then, I'm sorry, science just tells you you're wrong. And if your belief in God uh, hinges on that particular uh, belief, then, then you're dead in the water. So even Gould had to acknowledge that it really depends on what you mean by God and what particular version of, of God you're, you're espousing, which is, of course, um, very different from the situation of science. There are no different variety of sciences that we're talking about here. It's either you're, you're, you know, the scientists disagree on specific uh, theories, but there is essentially one body of methods and knowledge that we call science. On the other hand, religion is an incredibly heterogeneous uh, body of beliefs. So one has to at least to be uh, clear on what one means, because it sounds very nice, it sounds very ecumenical to say, well, science and religion have two different areas of expertise and let's just um, uh, keep them separate. Well, it depends. But even within the kind of religion that does not have any direct conflict with science, so suppose you are you know, a progressive uh, Catholic, uh, you know, the Pope, uh, the previous Pope, John Paul II, as, as we know, uh, did acknowledge that uh, the Catholic Church does not have uh, much of a problem, in fact, a problem at all, with the modern theory of uh, biological theory. Of right. Okay. Well, that sounds very good. Uh, that still does not amount to say that there is no overlap at all between the two areas of, of, uh, of intellectual endeavor. For one thing, because part of science is now getting actually to the point of uh, providing explanations, uh, at least tentative explanations, for where religious beliefs and morality come from to begin with. Uh, now, you, you know, I'm not a particular defender of evolutionary psychology either, <laughs> but the ideas are there. And uh, the fact that the ideas are there means that science is, in fact, beginning to encroach in the area, on the area of, of uh, uh, morality and, and religious beliefs and so on and so forth. Uh, should we kick it out just because we feel uncomfortable about it or because some people feel uncomfortable about it? I don't think so. Uh, that's not to say the current ideas about evolution and morality are necessarily correct, uh, but it certainly is worth exploring as, as a possibility. Right. And lastly, the, the, other, the last thing that really, um, I guess, prompted my disagreement with Gould is that he seems to somehow have forgotten that there is a whole different area uh, of human knowledge or human uh, uh, intellectual endeavor that, that greatly overlaps and often contradicts um, some religious positions, and that's, uh, of course, philosophy, particularly moral philosophy. So to say, as he says in, the, in that book, that morality is the, the province of religion, well, wait a minute. Uh, actually, morality is the province of a lot of different kinds of, of activities, as I said a minute ago, even possibly science, but certainly not only religion. Uh, so, in other words, the situation, it seems to me, is a lot more complicated than the nice and, and you know, neat distinction that uh, the group was trying to make. Uh, yeah, I agree. He did, see, he did go out of his way to sort of overstate... The, non, the historical non-overlapping of science and religion, and it struck me that you have to sort of you know turn a blind eye to all of the cases of you know religion essentially completely dominated science was the explanation for the natural world and has had to retreat um, territory, if you will, to scientific explanations and, and, this, and the institution of science. But could, do you think you could you know rescue? Um, a, a 
a legitimate point from Gould's position by saying that what he's describing is not the um, historical relationship between science and religion, but what the relationship should be. In other words, that religion should avoid overlapping with science and should restrict itself to the domains of morality and to the great unanswerable questions of existence that are inherently um, not explainable or not explorable by scientific methods. What would you say to that? I think that is a fair, um, a fair point. Uh, however, the question then uh, can also be asked the other way around. Should science be restricted from inquiries into morality and, and uh, religious beliefs and so on? Well, you, you could, uh, as we were saying with the intelligent design thing, there are some questions that are simply outside the realm of science. Right. And you can argue that, well, if once you're outside the realm of science by, by you know, methodological naturalism, then... You know, that's, that is the domain of faith. You're free to have any arbitrary belief or, or faith that you choose because these are questions that are inherently uh, outside of the scientific realm. For example, you may, some people believe that the question of whether or not God exists it, you know, or any power or entity or thing that is outside of the, the natural laws of the universe, not bound by, by nature, if you will, that that's an inherently... Uh, unanswerable question by science, and therefore is in the realm of faith. Right. Do, would you agree but, with with, the, with that non-overlapping aspect? Right. Uh, yes, I would agree with that non-overlapping. I'm afraid, however, that that will leave very little um, <laughs> uh, outside of, in fact, of the realm of science. And I'm perfectly happy. If people are happy with that conclusion, I'm I'm, I'm yes. fine to go along with it. But the kind of questions, the kind of encroaching of science into the territory of religion and morality that I was referring to does not deal directly with the question of the existence of God, which you're right, it's, it's by definition outside of the realm of science. But there are other things that are close enough to, uh, uh, to really bother a lot of religious believers that science is now beginning to encroach with. So right. suppose that we do come up eventually with a very reasonable, very serious uh, theory of how morality, a uh, sense of morality at least, and even possibly some certain specific moral rules evolved by natural selection uh, among primates uh, and, and right. particular groups of you know, societies. Well, you know, is that encroaching on, 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 on religion or not? Well, the, uh, this is what I would say to this, and this is, uh, I've certainly heard um, humanists and others take this approach, that science deals with statements of fact. What is the state of history, the state of nature? Whereas morality deals with statements of value. So mm -hmm. whenever you have to make a value judgment, that is a, that is a question that can be informed, factually informed by science, but cannot be made scientifically. Mm -hmm. So that is a very practical and real place to draw the line, again, to, to map out these domains. Right. So what you're referring to is, is what in philosophy is known as the uh, naturalistic fallacy, uh, which was discussed or originally by David Hume, and that, that was the idea was, in fact, that you cannot go from what is to what ought to be, from, right. from, from a matter of fact to a matter of value. Okay. Now, I have actually taken that position myself in the past, and quite frankly, I, I, at this moment, I keep vacillating back, back and forth, so right. don't, don't necessarily hold me to what I'm about to say in, in a few months, because I may change my mind again. But there is some interesting situations here that, that need to be discussed. So while it, I will certainly grant that there, are, there is a large area of 
specific moral decisions that are very far from anything that science can say at the moment. There are some particular moral values, particular moral rules, that seem to be, in fact, fairly straightforwardly explainable by science. For example, uh, there is a whole area now in philosophy of ethics, in philosophy of morality, that looks at the use of um, optimality model, models, game theoretical models, to predict what sort of behavior would be uh, optimal in, uh, in a group of individuals given certain constraints. This is a sort of you know, mathematical modeling that has been done mm -hmm. in evolution and biology for, for a lot of time, for a long time. But it's, until recently, it has not been applied, in fact, directly to questions of human morality. Well, it turns out that when people have, in the last three or four years, there have been a series of papers in major um, uh, science magazines, uh, when people have, in fact, applied that kind of game-theoretical approach to realistic situations and eventually tested their, their predictions with actual real human beings, uh, the funny thing that turned out is that uh, the models were able to predict very closely what real human beings would consider, uh, how they would act, and what they would consider moral or, or, or non-moral. That raises the question that some kinds of human behavior, uh, human uh, morality, such as uh, our attitude toward killing people, or our attitude toward cheating, and so on and so forth, those actually may be a matter of fact, meaning that uh, they are the expected outcome of uh, the evolution of a society of a certain kinds and with certain kinds of animals capable of thinking uh, in fairly abstract manners and so on and so forth. If that is the case, it seems to me that that approach begins to break down. It may not entirely break down, but it begins to at least blur the line between factual and, and value. Uh, judgments, because now the value judgment is predictable and explainable in terms of facts about nature. Yeah, I agree that there are certain things that we as human beings value, and um, the evolutionary psychologists are certainly in, engaged in, the, in an attempt to explain why we make those value judgments. Again, the evolutionary why, right. what was the advantage right. uh, for us having these value judgments. So but I, I, I'm not sure I agree that having an, an, a causal evolutionary why to those values makes them not values. Again, I said that would, for me, that's science informing the value yeah. judgment. But we still place a value on life. We place a value on human life. And then we get to some, there are some point where you have to make a judgment call. For example, how much relative value should we place upon animal life versus right. human life? How much relative value should we place upon the life of an embryo versus the life of a right. mother? No, I think Again, science, right. science can inform these questions, but it, it ultimately comes down to a value right. judgment that is the outside the realm of pure empiricism. I think you're right. Uh, so, but, but the way uh, that, therefore, I would see it is not uh, as clear line of, of separation between fact, facts on one hand and values on the other. I would see uh, some values are actually, as actually explainable entirely or in, or in large part as a result of facts of nature. For example, again, the kind of society, that, the kind of animal that we are, essentially. Other values are, on the other hand, in may be informed by facts discovered by science, but not entirely explained by it. And then there may be, that the the very, the very likely are, uh, certain areas of moral judgment, such as probably the one you just touched uh, upon, that is uh, how do we treat other animals, that are in fact essentially entirely outside the explanation of, of evolutionary biology. 
Um, that to me right. brings up an interesting model, however, of a sort of a continuum between fact and value rather than a sharp distinction. I agree, which is true in so much of you know, intellectual distinctions. It's a, it's a, a fuzzy yeah. continuum, not a sharp demarcation. But that doesn't mean, and that's actually another logical fallacy, the false continuum, yeah. that doesn't mean that there, there isn't a distinction to be made at the extremes, yeah. that there are certain questions that are pretty purely factual and other questions that are pretty purely you know, value judgments or, or moral, if you want to use yes, that term. I think, I think you're right. Uh, but the question that concerns us as, as skeptics and, and scientists and so on is, well, how many people are going to be happy with this idea of a continuum? <laughs> you know, uh, it may be that, that a lot of people are simply going to be very unhappy with, with the idea that there is any continuity at all. And, right. you know, and how do we deal with it? You know, I, I agree, but I think this is such a critical core intellectual concept that I don't think you can water it down. Right. I think we just have to, just through education, get people to think in a little bit more complex way and to appreciate the concept of continuum. Because it's, I, I just can't imagine dispensing it with it or trying to teach concepts with a false dichotomy right. without giving people the appreciation for how to think about continuum with, with like pseudo, you know, pseudoscience on one end and science at the other end um, and with a continuum in between for example and again, pretty much anything you can any distinction you can think to make is really probably a continuum and not a sharp demarcation right, right. so I agree with you that's, that's a very common fall, fallacy that people fall into uh, and I think we just need to, to force our way through with education which brings, to us, make these right, which brings us to the question of what kind of education? Um, and and, and uh, as you know, um, there have been there's been a lot of talk about we need more science education and more science education will, will help solving right. these kind of problems. And over the years, I've become convinced that actually we don't need more science education, at least not the kind of science education we're doing at the moment. Right. We need better. Uh, science yes. Education. In fact, critical uh, quite different. Uh, I think we need a quite a different kind of science education because. Still today, a lot of our science education is, especially in, in disciplines such as biology, much less so in, in, in areas like physics. Uh, but biology is, to, to a large extent, uh, you know, a factual, taught uh, in, in, uh, in a factual manner. Right. So, it, you know, it really, an introductory course in biology reads almost as, as charmingly as the yellow pages. I mean, you just you know, start with A and then, and then with Z. And there is very little that we do to uh, um, actually train our students and our, and our children uh, to, toward the real objective of education, which I think is, is critical thinking of it. Yeah. Now, it is true, of course, that you cannot think on an empty mind. So in order to be critically you know, thinking about something, you actually do have to know some of the facts. But I really right. don't believe the model that the fact that the critical thinking is simply going to be a result of seepage through a, a, an ocean of, of facts. I don't think we need the ocean of facts. No, yeah, I agree. Clearly, the, the critical thinking, the, you know, theory, understanding, and logic does not flow naturally from just memorizing a bunch of facts. There are certainly people that know lots of facts but have no real understanding, like, oh, creationists, for <laughs> yes. example. Or, or anyone that we would think of as a crank. You know, we know these people. They have all this factual knowledge, but they just no. don't get it. 
At the same time, empty theories, you know, you tend to drift off into la-la land if you don't have some actual empirical right. facts to anchor you to right. reality. So it's an it's a interaction, an intimate interaction between the two, theory and fact working together and hand-in-hand. Hand. That is what we need to teach kids, and that's why intelligent design and creationism is such a, would be such a critical blow, and has been, in fact, a critical blow to the quality of our science education, because it really undercuts that relationship. Right. Yes, uh, you cannot... Uh, it's, it's hard to exercise critical thinking when uh, uh, one of the possibilities on the table is that uh, a supernatural being just did it. And why did he do it? Well, because right. he felt like it. And how did he do it? Well, who knows? It was supernatural. And well, right. there's not much you can go on from, from that kind of premise, obviously. Um, you, you, you mentioned that you weren't a big fan of evolutionary psychology, right. which is basically the discipline of trying to explain human motivations and beliefs and morality in evolutionary terms. What's your beef with that? Well, the idea, I think, is sound, meaning, meaning that you know, the basic idea uh, is that, look, human beings are, of course, one kind of animal, and as all other animals on Earth, we have an evolutionary history. We evolved by natural selection, among other uh, mechanisms, over a long period of time. And so it's, all, it's only logical to think that natural selection did not shape just the physical, our physical bodies, but it also shaped some, at least in part, our mental uh, abilities. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that natural selection can shape and change the behavior of other animals, so why not humans? So the basic premise, I think, is, is, is fundamentally sound. The problem is this. Since, of course, as we know, behaviors, especially human, humanly interesting, interesting behaviors, don't fossilize. They don't leave much of a fossil record. Right. Since we don't have, not only that, but the situation is made worse by the fact that there are no close relatives, phylogenetically speaking, evolutionarily speaking, to human beings alive today. You know, our closest relatives are chimpanzees and, and bonobos, which have diverged from us several million years ago. That's not even close. Uh, by any standard of, uh, of so-called phylogenetic compatible analysis. So we don't have, and of course there were other species of humans, but uh, they all, for one reason or another, died off um, some time ago. Well, let me just pause there for a minute, though. Have you, did you read Carl Sagan's book, Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors? Yes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, actually, his line of argument in that book was looking at the behavior of chimps and, and primates to see if we can infer anything about um, human psychological evolutionary ancestors. You're not saying that we can't get any value from looking at chimps and, and our closest no, relatives. No, I'm not saying that we can get any value, but I'm saying that we can get very little value for this, the following reason, and with all due respect to Carl Sagan. Uh, but the, 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 the reason is this. At best, we have a phylogenetic group uh, you know, close relatives of three or four species, right? Uh, you know, if you count the two species of chimpanzees and one of gorilla. Mm -hmm. And that's simply not enough for any serious comparative phylogenetics. In fact, comparative phylogenetics is, uh, has been a booming discipline in evolutionary biology for the last 20 years. But all the best studies that have been done in comparative phylogenetic studies usually include a large number of species that are fairly close related to each other, minimum and, and a minimum 20 or 30. The reason for that is because then you can apply statistical techniques that have been uh, you know, developed over, over the last several years. Right. The problem, therefore, with the case of humans is not that it's impossible in, 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 as a matter of principle or that it is a particularly unsound idea. It just happens that we're pretty unlucky in terms of the number of comparisons we can make. Now, right. that said, of course... Yes, one can look at the behavior of chimpanzees or bonobos, which, by the way, are very different from each other and equally, right. equally related to us. 
but and, and of course get some clues or some interesting ideas, some interesting suggestions about how certain human behaviors or certain human traits have evolved. So if in fact we were doing, if evolutionary psychology were a branch of philosophy informed by science, uh, that is, it's a way to build plausible stories about, uh, about the origin of certain human traits, and you know what, we cannot really test them rigorously, but these are plausible, then I'm perfectly happy with them. In fact, that's exactly what I said a few minutes ago in this broadcast when I was talking about uh, possible ideas about the evolution of morality and so on and so forth. Right. But the problem comes to me because when, when evolutionary psychologists really make a hard pitch for the idea that theirs is, in fact, a quantifiable science with empirically testable hypothesis. Largely, although not entirely, it's not. And it's not, not because of their fault, but because of this, the reality of the situation. We only have a few species to compare, not enough to, to, to carry out statistical tests, and we have otherwise very little information about what human uh, environments were like, especially social environments, were like uh, during the Pleistocene. We have next to nothing in terms of, of knowledge of what humans actually did, beha behaved, or thought right. at the time. And so, you know, to me, evolutionary psychology at the moment, and I don't see how this is going to change anytime soon, is an interesting way of thinking about uh, how certain human traits may have come about, but it is really not a, a science in the, in, the, in the satisfactory uh, sense of the term. Now, there's one other method that you didn't comment on that might be more plausible for, for evolutionary psychology, and that is looking at the, uh, the phenotypic expression, if you will, mm -hmm. throughout currently existing human populations. So right. although we only have one species, we do have a number of races, we have a number of isolated cultures, and, and what evolutionary psychologists do is look for those psychological traits which seem to be universal among humans right. despite vast disparities in culture, mm -hmm. and that is one other window onto evolutionary psychology. What do you think about that? Yeah, that, again, that is a, a reasonable approach, and it is an approach that is used by evolutionary biologists in, in, uh, when, when they study other species. In some sense, however, it suffers from the opposite problem of the one that we were just talking about. So if we're talking about long-term evolution, uh, as I said a minute ago, we're missing uh, the, the number of, the, a sufficient number of comparisons. If we're talking about very, very short-term evolution, so we're talking about evolution within Homo sapiens, um, perhaps we can, we can actually understand something about differences between existing populations of humans. But when it comes down to how those universals that you're talking about actually did evolve, you know, were they the result of natural selection or of other evolutionary processes? There are evolutionary processes that are not uh, selective in nature. Right. So, for example, you know, random drift is, is the result of simply... Uh, fixing certain genes in certain small populations. We know that human beings, we know from molecular data, uh, that the human population at certain times in its history was in fact small enough to uh, cause that sort of, of uh, random drift of characteristics. So for any particular camp that we see today, uh, we're not going to be able in a position to know if it was the result of natural selection, as of course evolutionary psychologists will maintain, uh, or the result of, of essentially historical accidents. And that is, the, by the way, the, the, the one million dollar question in evolution biology. You know, how do you discriminate between uh, selective histories and, and random accidents? The, right. the way usually, again, biologists do it is when they either have a, a very detailed um, uh, level of information at the fossil record or when they have a lot of close-related species. 
Um, I can tell you one example. Look, uh, this, this, this may be a little, uh, uh, the example itself is a little technical, but it's, I think, very um, illuminating about the sort of things that we would like to be able to do in evolutionary psychology and that I think at the moment at least we can't do. One of the best examples uh, published in the last uh, few years of comparative phylogenetic studies in non-human uh, animals uh, was the, the, uh, a study that dealt with the question of why certain uh, fish have, uh, certain male fish have a, a long tail which seems to be attractive to a female. So these are short-tailed fishes which you can buy for your aquarium. And it has been known for a long time that females have a preference for, for males that have a long tail. Well, the question was this. Did the preference evolve first, or did the tail evolve first? Um, and how are you going to answer that sort of question? You cannot answer it by looking at variation within, a, within the current species, because you will find males with, with um, uh, longer or shorter uh, tails, and you will find females with more or less preference for long tails, but you won't be able, since they're all mixed up, mixed around, then you can't, you can't tell which one came first. Right. The way they solved this problem, this was an extremely elegant uh, piece of work, was that they looked at, uh, these researchers looked at the 15 or 20 most closely related species to the short-tailed fish. Some of these species have the, the, the tail, the very close relatives, and some of them don't. The males don't have the tail. Um, so if you trace back the evolution of the tail, you will find that at one point, a certain you know, number of a million years ago, there were fish that are closely related to the short tail, which did not have the tail. Turns out, however, that their females have the preference. So if you expose the female of some close relatives without the tail to a male that has an artificial tail, they'll go for it. That is very strong indication that, in fact, the female preference evolved before the tail. and then, the tail. Right. And then the tail evolved as a result of the, of the fact that, for whatever reason, which we don't know at the moment, uh, some females did have that preference. Now, that's a beautiful example of how you can figure out, in fact, how natural selection can favor certain, not only morphological traits, such as the tail, but, certain, but, but it interacts with behavioral traits, such as female preference. That's exactly the sort of stuff that evolution biologists would die to have in the right. human species. And the problem, again, is that, unfortunately, we don't have 20 or 25 species to play with. Right. One more attempt to rescue evolutionary <laughs> One more attempt. And that is computer models where you essentially take preferences and, su and subject them to uh, a computer evolutionary models and then see what those, what um, advantages, survival advantages, those psychological preferences result in right. to see how statistically how that matches actual human preferences and human behavior. What do you think about that approach? Right. That, again, that's a, that's a very reasonable approach. And in fact, actually, among the ones that we have discussed so far is probably the best. That goes down mm -hmm. to, this, to the uh, game theoretical models of the evolution of, of uh, morality, actually, uh, that I was mentioning uh, right. sometime earlier. Um, Again, those are very suggestive, and you know, when, whenever you do get a match between a reasonably built mathematical model and 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 uh, reasonably calibrated data, yeah, yeah. calibrated data, then then of course that's a very uh, very interesting finding. It by itself, of course, is not conclusive, but it's a it's a heck of an interesting finding. Right. Now, that said, there are caveat, caveats there too. Number one, those models do depend a lot on the, uh, on, the, on the assumptions that are embedded in the parameters, so the costs, for example, to fitness. Mm -hmm. And those assumptions are often 
just a guess of the of the, of the model. You know, they're, they're, they're difficult to justify independently from an empirical perspective. This is not just true for humans. It's it's, it's a problem with game theoretical models in general. Um, the other thing is, again, it's difficult to get very you know reliable or meaningful data from um, modern bio, uh, uh, human populations because modern bio, uh, human populations, unfortunately, are by and large, so mixed up in terms of cultural um, uh, values and, and influences, and also it's very difficult to measure fitness um, in modern environments. And in fact, uh, one can make the argument that fitness in modern environments is essentially irrelevant to the question, because what we really want to know is what were the fitness payoffs in the place to see, right. you know, during, during the time in which these traits really did evolve. Uh, the, those fitness payoffs and, and, and trade-offs may be very, very different from the ones you can measure today in, in modern human populations. So again, it's not it's not hopeless. But what I would like to uh, to stress is that I think evolutionary scientists have a heck of a lot long way to go, and they don't seem, or at least I, I don't want to make a blanket statement here, but a lot of them don't seem to be particularly concerned. Let's put it this way. Uh, about these sort of limitations which have been pointed out to them by a variety of sources. So just to change gears a little bit, reading through your website, which by the way, if I didn't mention it earlier, is you have a, a website called rationallyspeaking.org, which uh, has a large number of essays covering uh, evolutionary biology, creationism and intelligent design, philosophy, and you even venture out into, into the misty world of politics, which we don't deal with too much on this show. But I did notice that you wrote an essay about a topic which is uh, a humorous topic of interest to skeptics, the uh, about the bright uh, oh, yes. phenomenon fiasco a couple of years ago. Now, uh, just for a quick history, a couple of years ago, a couple of humanists uh, came up with the idea of essentially renaming those people who take a naturalistic worldview, who believe that there's nothing supernatural uh, or, or paranormal in the world. And rather than being labeled with the, the negative terms that we've been stuck with, atheist and skeptic, that have Cynic. a lot of negative connotation, to, to come up with, a, with a, a positive term, modeling this after the gay community, essentially branding themselves as gay as a, to, to basically engender a more positive outlook. Now, you wrote an article a couple of years ago in 2003, essentially praising this movement and this idea. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to me that it hasn't really taken off in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Has your opinion of this changed at all since then? Yeah, this is one of those areas in which um, I, I'm afraid uh, it was a good idea, but as you said, it hasn't worked, and probably it hasn't worked for partially for the very reasons that were pointed out by critics at the beginning, uh, which is the parallel with the gay community is in fact compelling. Uh, I mean, I, I think the analysis there is correct, that part, right. part of what helped, certainly not the entire thing, but part of, of what helped uh, creating a positive image for the gay community is in fact the decision to call themselves gay. Um, however, and therefore, you know, something like bright sounds like a bright idea at, uh, as the initial mm-hmm. uh, reactions uh, went. Um, however, unfortunately, bright, especially in a society like the American one, uh, has a very different connotation than gay. You know, nobody would, de- would, would disagree with being called gay. Nobody would f- consider uh, somebody you know, a snob because they consider themselves gay. The word bright, on the other hand, of course, uh, especially to certain people, and, and I, I, must, I must say, 
especially in a country like the United States with a, with a uh, long history of, of several different trends of anti-intellectualism. Right. To consider yourself right and you actually vocally say so, it's, it's, it's obviously, uh, if not the ultimate sin, it's pretty close to it. So I suppose that's the reason the thing has not worked, and uh, therefore I would have to concede that, yes, it probably wasn't exactly as bright an idea as it sounded from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it kind of struck us as, as misguided, um, and even other early supporters like Michael Shermer have, have backed off. He, he wrote a commentary saying that, that basically this was an attempt at rebranding, and right. it, it was done without any marketing research, mm-hmm. without not even a, an email to the community saying, hey, what do you guys think about this? Their defense was, well, we didn't want to do things by committee. It would have taken forever. And sometimes you just have to do things right. to get them done. But they, they really tried to I- impose a term onto a very certainly independently thinking um, group of people by fiat. And I thought it was doomed from the outset. Especially as you point out, you know, calling oneself gay is not an automatic offense to those people who are whom, to whom you are not referring, because they will not, you know, being not gay is not an insult. That's right. But <laughs> not being bright. Not being <laughs> bright. Exactly. Yeah, you're not bright. I mean, that is so. You, no one is ever going to buy into a term that's an implied insult to everybody else. That's right. right? Yes. So I thought it, for that reason it was kind of doomed to failure. Yeah. It does bring up the interesting question, though. What do we call ourselves? I mean, one thing that's interesting that came out of the, the bright hoo-ha-ha was that, you know what, no one came up with a good alternate. Right. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Um, well, so first of all, it depends on, on what you mean by ourselves, because as you know, uh, you know the mm-hmm. skeptic community, for example, uh, does include some people who um, are believers in, in some sort of supernatural um, being. Yeah, exactly. And in that case, you know, I don't want to use the term, for example, secular humanist, uh, because those people certainly wouldn't, wouldn't consider themselves that way. So I think my answer to that is, is twofold. On the one hand, I don't think we need one term, because we do actually have um, a large, you know, several different kinds of constituencies that, that uh, are uh, um, joint, the joint efforts in certain areas. A- again, skepticism is one of them. You don't have right. to, have a non- to be a non-believer in order to be a skeptic uh, in, in, in most areas of you know, science, pseudoscience, and so on. Uh, the other thing is, uh, when people ask me what I am, uh, normally I just call myself a humanist, not even using the word secular, because at this point there, essentially, there, is, there are no known secular humanists as far as I'm concerned anyway. There are no divine humanists? There are no divine humanists. Uh, even though, of course, as you know, that's, that's how the term originated during the Renaissance. Uh, there were only divine humanists. There were only uh, you know, religious humanists. But as far as I'm concerned, the term humanist is, is good enough to describe what I, what I believe. I, I, I don't subscribe to any supernatural power out there, certainly none, none that is concerned with human affairs. And therefore, I have, I'm optimistic about, despite all the evidence, uh, about what human beings can do. Uh, and so the word humanist fits pretty well. If we're not right. talking about metaphysics, uh, then I call myself a, a skeptic, because I think um, uh, it still is the best term, uh, especially if, if you want to clarify that a skeptic is, is, is not necessarily somebody who always says no. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a positive skepticism in the, in the sense of David Hume. Right. You know, a skeptic is somebody who entertains uh, ideas and, and subjects them to rational and empirical scrutiny instead of either accepting them without reservations or rejecting them outright. 
I agree. I mean, I th- I, I, I'm happy to call myself a skeptic. Sometimes I'll modify it by saying I'm a scientific skeptic, but it's basically a skeptic. In, with, in terms of religious beliefs, I, I call myself an agnostic. But I, I basically accepted the fact that no matter what I call myself, I'm going to have to explain it a little bit. <laughs> yes. there, there is no yeah. one term that, that does not require some explanation. But, you know, that's the nature of this whole endeavor, there's a certain amount of complexity to our philosophy and our, our beliefs, and they defy a single, especially monosyllabic label. And in, right. and in fact, that's not a bad idea at all, because the fact that we have to explain ourselves as soon as we, as we label ourselves is actually a good thing, because it implies that, look, part of what we're about is engaging in, in a discourse with people and educating people about certain, certain aspects of, of thinking. Uh, so, yeah, it does require explanation, and I really wouldn't, wouldn't want to see a day in which it wouldn't require an explanation. Right. Uh, it, it's, uh, explanations are good because they engage people in discussions. Yeah, although, uh, uh, admittedly, the downside to that is when you're trying to market a, a magazine like Skeptical <laughs> Empire or, or yes. Skeptic or, you're, or trying to sell an organization like the New England Skeptical Society, you, you, there is a branding, a marketing issue here. You do want a term that's going to be looked at initially positively, or at least curiously, and not have an initial negative reaction. I think that uh, just be just culturally, historically, almost anything that would reasonably define us, uh, and again, as you point out, us is lots of different things, you know, with just a very loose philosophical connections, that anything that would define us you know, probably has some negative baggage that goes along with it. True, but uh, then again, it could be worse. I mean, I just got uh, from Paul Kurtz this uh, nice certificate uh, that says that I'm a upraxifer. What now? There's a term that is not going anywhere. A upraxifer? Yes. Yeah, Paul <laughs> Kurtz is, by the way, the, the, the founder of both uh, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal and the, secular, the Council for Secular Humanists. And he has a long history of these really obscure terms. The original <laughs> name for the skeptical inquirer was the Zetetic. Exactly. Um, we, we were recently, I was at a meeting with him where we were trying to figure out what to name our the medical journal that looks at you know controversial and, and pseudoscientific claims. And he had another um, <laughs> Greek name that would, nobody would know what it meant. Oh, and I can't even remember what it was. That's how bad it is. But uh, and that, that's a bad sign right there. Yeah, that's <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's it's a challenge. It's a, it's a, I guess that's that's our cross to bear in, yeah. in the skeptical movement and in humanism and philosophical naturalism and the entire spectrum and everything in between. Yep. <laughs> well, Massimo, it was a pleasure. We we greatly enjoyed you having on our podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. You were, in fact, our first guest, our first, first guest skeptic on, on the show. I we appreciate honored. it. I'm honored. It was my pleasure. <laughs> thank you. We hope to have you back sometime. Yes, definitely. <laughs> thank you, Massimo. All right, thank, thank you, Massimo. And this, this is Stephen Novella. Until next week, this has been The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is a production of the New England Skeptical Society. For more information on this and other episodes, see our website at www.thenss.com.